This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Well, greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pastor Mike, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a Black Christian Collective. If you're tuning in for the first time, I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And today we have a special episode for you. The world has been captivated and gripped by the shocking, heinous, tragic murder of Ahmad Arbery in Brunswick, Georgia on February 23rd by two armed white men. So many of us have been trying to figure out how we feel, deal with it. And last week, we had the privilege of going live with a few of our friends to members of The Witness to lament, to have a discussion about what we should do next and how we should feel. I'm joined in this episode by the president of The Witness, Jamar Tisby. I'm joined by one of our executive team members, Ali Henney, and also a friend of the show, the founder of Faith for Justice, Michelle Higgins. Of course, you know her as one third of Truth's Table. I hope that this episode, while it may not necessarily be set up in the same way as a podcast would typically be, would be a sense of encouragement for you, a sense of refreshing. I pray that we would not go back to normal. I pray that we would not miss this opportunity to do some serious self-examination. That's what I did live on this podcast. That's what so many did as they were watching and listening. And I hope that's what you do as well. Take some time and prepare yourself for this very important conversation about Ahmad Arbery and our responsibility. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. Well, good evening, everyone. Um, we are joining you and you are joining us at an unfortunate time, at a tragic time. Um, for those of you who are unaware, my name is Tyler Burns. I'm the vice president of the Witness at Black Christian Collective, co-host of Pass the Mic. And I'm going to be joined by a few of my friends, uh, three in particular, um, members of the Witness or extended family of the Witness, uh, to discuss the tragic murder of Ahmad Arbery, uh, which took place on February 23rd. Um, I am joined um, by this panel, and these are people who we respect and love, and people who um, are giving voice in this moment, and who we would like to hear from. I, I would also like to say before I kick it to them, and before I give a brief introduction, that we will be taking some questions on our live uh, Facebook feed on The Witness. So if you happen to be watching this somewhere else, we'll only take questions uh, from the Witness uh, Facebook page. But I want to introduce the panel. First of all, I want to introduce Michelle Higgins uh, to you. She is the founding member of Faith for Justice. She is one-third of the incredible, incomparable Truth's Table podcast. And there are so many other things I could say about Michelle. 
Uh, we also have Ali Henney as well. She's staff member here at The Witness, and she is also uh, the, the host of the podcast, Combing the Roots, uh, as many of you know her and have listened to her penetrating insights. Ali, how are you doing tonight? I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. And then last but not least, the man, the myth, the legend, the president of the Witness of Black Christian Collective. Yes, absolutely. Rep your set. Rep your set. Jamar Tisby. Man, so, I, you know, as we as we hop into this, I'm going to be honest with you all. We don't have anything that is necessarily polished or uh, prepared in a in a canned way as we typically would. Um, I think all of us in one way, shape or form or another are, are grieving. We're not just grieving the losses of um, normalcy or whatever we perceive to be normalcy from this pandemic. Uh, but we're also grieving um, the loss of life. Again, we are here to lament over the death of yet another uh, black body um, in the streets, gunned down uh, by two um, by two men who were armed and who pursued him outside um, when he wasn't doing anything but minding his own business. Um, so we are obviously talking about Ahmad Arbery, but we're also, uh, by extension, talking about all of the hashtags that continually never seem to end. And the ones that we are unaware of as well. Um, I've seen multiple ones even today. Um, so I, I hope that we enter into this moment solemnly recognizing um, that this is not just one incident, but by proxy, um, we are also lamenting and mourning uh, what is systemic within our country and in our land. And then I also want to say uh, that this is intended to be a safe space of lament. And so we will be our, as, as authentic as we feel comfortable being in front of however many people are watching um, but this is a safe space, and especially if you are Black and you are here and, and grieving and in pain and in sorrow, we welcome you. We hold space for you, and we also hold space for our panelists as well, not to be uh, polished in the way that we would typically expect, uh, but to be who you are um, authentically. So I'll kick it to Michelle first. Michelle, um, you do this work. You're, you're immersed in it. You're an activist. Um, you advocate. This is your life. Uh, how are you doing and what what is rising to the surface of your heart right now? I'm so thankful uh, that we're doing this. I'm thinking a lot about uh, our brother Ahmad's birthday being tomorrow. Uh, and so I'm thinking about how his death, which happened uh, February 23rd, just so that so that we know, so that we can feel how far behind even we are on this subject of pain and mourning and despite the fact that I'm thankful that we're all here now, why it takes such a gruesome and awful display, a video that I hope no one watches, uh, I'm shocked and I'm saddened by the fact that on February 23rd, a man lost his life because white folks were doing what whiteness demands of them. And what whiteness demands of white people is that they police black bodies, point blank, period. We watch whiteness work when black lives are destroyed. And this is why my, my challenge, my call, my pain is now to continue the same thing that we've been saying. You know, we have this hashtag, we've been saying. We have to dismantle and destroy and thus defeat whiteness. And for me, that means for me to protect, to applaud, to defend, and to embrace the beauty of Blackness. We deal with Black men in their death. And when, when will we embrace them, amplify, uplift 
all Black people in life. This is, um, this is what's shocking and what's hurting me. This is how whiteness works. Mm, um, yeah, yeah. Needed to hear that. Needed to hear that. Needed to hear that. Thank you, Michelle. Um, Jamar, what's rising to the surface of your heart? Um, a couple of things. One is, of course, grief and lament, namely for the Arbery family, because as this video gets shared around, they have to not only witness the murder of their son, friend, brother, but also um, know that millions of people also are witnessing it too, and then deal with the plethora of trash opinions and trolling out there regarding it. So it just amplifies the grief, and it reminds me of um, the families of, of all our civil rights martyrs, from the Evers to the Kings to um, uh, the Malcolm X's family and, and all of that. We have to remember that there are human beings behind these hashtags, and especially for the immediate family and friends that are sort of um, online outrage for them is real and it's heartfelt. So that's the first reaction. The second reaction is, uh, builds on what Michelle was saying, that, that whiteness demands the policing of black bodies and there's a historical context for that. And so I reference often an article by uh, independent historian and Carrie Lee Merritt. She wrote on the blog site, Black Perspectives, an article called um, One Continuous Graveyard. And it's talking about the origins of professional policing immediately following the Civil War. What a lot of people don't realize is that most cities didn't have a line item in the budget for a standing police force. Prior to the Civil War, if something happened, they would get a posse together, go take care of the problem. And usually the, the, the suspect was white because most black people were controlled in a system of enslavement. But now post-emancipation, you got all these free Negroes running around and white people still need cheap labor and they still need to control black bodies. So what do they do? They come up with things like vagrancy laws, which cast a broad net and, and, and trap black people with impunity that, quote, deemed it lawful for any person to arrest said vagrants, which effectively gave all whites legal authority over blacks. Now, that's salient because, unfortunately, we have seen many, many videos and heard many, many stories of law enforcement. Uh, uh, perpetrating brutality and even murder on unarmed black citizens. But here's a case with Ahmaud Arbery where you have people who are not with a badge or in a uniform and who took it upon themselves to police black bodies. And it goes back to this idea of saying any person can arrest said vagrants, any person can monitor black activity and black presence in so-called white spaces. And what white supremacy does is it's a colonizer mentality that deems all spaces white spaces. And then any person of color, particularly black people, are intruders, interlopers, and also a threat that apparently need to be hunted down with guns and pistols and eliminated. So there's a long history of this idea that uh, white people, whether with a badge or not, whether with legal sanction or not, take it upon themselves to question and to intervene whenever black people are, are present. You know, and, and, and to that point also, I believe it was Yolanda Pierce, who is um, the head of the Howard uh, University School of Divinity, who mentioned um, immediately following the video release, the, the banality of racism and white supremacy, how it interrupts us in, in everyday 
um, life and in, it interrupts us in doing the most innocuous things, whether it is um, standing or walking or jogging or um, getting into a car accident or shopping or any number of things that as that viral post has been going around that playing video games in our houses um, with relatives. Um, Ali, can you, can you add to this? What is rising to the surface of your heart and um, what stands out? So I'm just going to be real. Um, like y'all were really super polished and I just don't really have any nice things to say, like as far as being polished. Um, I apologize in advance if a curse word or two or five slip out. And I apologize to my mama um, because if she's watching this, she probably is. Because honestly, y'all, like I'm just numb. Like I've thought about it. I've, I've analyzed it some, but I, like I've known about this for probably about a week or so before it hit the news. And like, I saw it, a, a mutual friend of all of ours had been, who, who's close to the situation had been posting about it. And so I knew, and I was just like, I got too much going on. Right. Like, I just, I like, I just can't engage with another black person dying. Like it's, it's the same thing. It's the same scuba on different day. And of course we got kicked off again. So we're going to keep going, but that's okay. So, I mean, it is, it is the same scubalon. If you don't know what scubalon is, scubalon is the Greek word for poop, but the, but the ni- less nice word for poop on a different day. And it's just, it's, it's the same cycle. It's the same stuff that keeps happening over and over and over again. A black man gets killed by some white person. Their body is laying out in the street. White people don't believe us about racism there's a video. So then it's a video. And so then, so then we have to say like, Hey, don't assail us with the video. Um, I actually did watch the video cause I was just like, I, like, I gotta see like what, what it is. Um, I don't regret watching the video, but I certainly understand why others didn't, but you know, I'm just like, this is th- th- like, I think for me, it was like disbelief that like, this didn't like, 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 yes, I believe the people who said that it happened the way that it happened, but like also like it wasn't like that right and it was every bit of that and more and it's just the same stuff and i guess at this point like as as more and more as we keep stacking up all these hashtags i'm just like it's just i I just feel numb it's just like i mean where like i haven't even shed any tears about this at this point i mean maybe i'll shed tears later but at this point it's just like it's it's the same stuff and then we get like all the all the oh we're so sad oh this is such a thing oh i support the black community but like whiteness keep doing what whiteness do and i'm just like i just i just can't anymore it's just a lot and i just can't yeah um Well, if you're hopping in, I just want to give you guys um, a little bit of update of where we are Um, for those who are just hopping in. um, We wanted to continue this in a live way. And so um, as you are hopping in, we want to ask you to mute your mic and your camera. Um, It will automatically happen, but we want to ask you to do that. And we are going to hop back in our conversation. Again, we um, do apologize for the technical difficulties that we're not entirely sure and do not necessarily believe um, are accidental or coincidental, um, but we are trying to provide a space. And, and let me speak to this. You know, we are the black, a black Christian collective, and we are trying to provide a space uh, for black Christians and black people 
uh, to be their fully embodied selves in lament in this moment. And so I just want to encourage everyone who may be non-Black in this particular space to uh, realize that this is a Black space and this is a place where we will center the Black experience. And so as you hear things and as you interact and as you ask questions, I want to encourage you to keep um, to keep in mind that this is a Black-centered space. And so we won't be editing ourselves um, uh, or we will try as best as we can not to edit ourselves um, as if we are under the white gaze. Um, so that's just a little bit of housekeeping for you. Ali, before we got kicked off, you started to, um, before, you got, before you got kicked off, you started to talk a little bit about um, some of the things that you were feeling. And I'm not exactly sure when it ended, but can you pick up wherever you left off and, and to kind of talk through some of those things? Oh, shoot. I don't know. All I know, <laughs> I, can't re I can't remember the last thing I said. I just know that like, I am just kind of mad about stuff and it's, and it's a numbness really of just, it is the same stuff on a different day. It's just lather, rinse, repeat. A black person gets killed, their body's in the street, they're bleeding out in the street. Somebody happens to take a video of it or we get some account of it in some way, shape, form or fashion. Then the general public finds out the black people find out about it in our networks then the general population finds out about it and then it becomes a lot of talk and a lot of white people oh to my black friends oh i feel so bad oh this is so whatever and nothing changes and black people it's still literally open season on black bodies and um i'm just numb like i haven't shed any tears right now because, and I'm not, I mean, maybe, you know, I'll burst out crying or something, um, like on this, uh, broadcast or something, but at this point, I'm just really just kind of mad about it. And I'm really just kind of like, it's, this is so senseless. It's so, it, it was so unnecessary. And I really feel like that it, it just, it was, it was so senseless. It was so unnecessary. It was so not anything that needed to happen yet. Here we are lamenting another black person's body being abused. We're sitting here lamenting another black person's death. Another name is a hashtag. People shouldn't be hashtags, yet people are hashtags. Again, another person's a hashtag again. And I mean, you know, uh, Michelle and Jamar, they, they were really polished and really kind of you know, gave insightful analysis. Really like, all I'm bringing to this is I'm, I'm mad. And like, I, and I'm mad even like, I'm just gonna be real. Like I'm mad that even in this space, there's so, but like, it feels like we're just for consumption. It just feels like black people and black grief and black death is for consumption. There are so many people on here that, 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 that I know that you're here and you're showing solidarity, but it just feels like I'm for consumption right now. This doesn't feel like solidarity to me. It feels like consumption. Yeah. Um, you know, we, you mentioned the numbness and you mentioned, you know, the, the mix, the cocktail, the emotions that you're feeling. And I identify with that and I'm not really sure how I feel or what I feel in this moment. Um, Jamar, Michelle, anybody, I mean, hop in, um, you know, is it numbness? What are we feeling right now? What are you feeling right now? Um, you know, what, can you help us process what this is? Because I think it's different, it's different than before. And I think it's probably because there have been some, there's been some distance between the last one that was really popularized um, or because we're becoming desensitized to black death. Um, you know, I'm, I, I think it's a compounding of both, but, but Michelle or, and Jamar, you know, 
hop in. Like, what are, what are we feeling and what's that, that numbness? What does that say about us? What does that say about our culture? The fatigue, what does that say about us? What does that say about our culture? I think, I think helplessness is weathering. Feeling helpless uh, is just one way to, to be weathered in the season that we live in. It makes me tired to not know what to do about what's happening to my people. And it wears me out to be angry because anger is, I mean, it is a leader. The way the shame leads us down a path, the way the trepidation leads us down or away from certain paths, anger does the same thing. And I think that rage can weather us. Um, Helplessness mixed with rage can make us numb. Uh, But also we have to admit the same way that many churches have had to admit in the past 20 to 30 years, that we're complacent, that there's nothing around me that is preventing me from sheltering in place right now. Uh, I didn't lose all of my paycheck. I'm, I'm a creative, according to some, but I'm also a speaker and I also have a regular job that I still have a lot of provision. And a lot of the things that I'm provided with edge me towards a capitalism that Dr. King warned Protestants not to get too comfortable in. And that is because when we feel accomplishment, we fail people like Rodney King. The church failed him overwhelmingly. When we feel comfortable, we fail people like Trayvon Martin. Many churches who believe that Jesus is alive right now, who believe that the Lord is coming back, who believe the traditional conservative theological viewpoints that many of us share, were comfortable. And all, all of us have to admit that at some point we have known someone in our lives or been someone in our own life who is afraid of a Trayvon Martin. And we either did not self-correct, did not confess, or we did not correct that person who admitted that they were afraid of a black kid in a hoodie. So some of our numbness, helplessness, and yes, even our rage, we have to admit that we have been complacent in times when we should have been rose up, when we should have been said something, but we were the silent partner in a black child's death. And I think it's important for us to think about uh, our brother's birthday coming up tomorrow, Ahmad's birthday is tomorrow. And to me, that celebration, the bitterness of it, Jamar named it. He said, that family has to mourn. I feel helpless, not just because I'm stuck in here because of the coronavirus, but in part because our protest will lead to what? What will it lead to? So one, I think that it's time to do more than demand legislative change, which I believe we have to do. I am a 21st century abolitionist, and it means absolutely nothing to me that the father and son duo that murdered our brother was arrested today because they're going to get thrown into prison where they will maybe, maybe not even. They'll either walk scot-free or they'll be thrown somewhere that turns them further into animals that only increases their hatred. They will see neither rehabilitation nor true justice. And so my community will still be at risk 
because people put in jail who are caged only become animals. So where I sit right now is to demand what I know my faith can lead me to. And that is to refuse as often as possible. So many of us like Ali are numb and we'll just be numb for a while. But faith leads me to demand something different. It leads me to demand an actual lifestyle of spiritual renewal. And so I can demand from myself that my children are raised to believe that their blackness is beautiful and that their blackness is a blessing from God. And I can demand that white people sit down and have a talk with your kids. You have a talk. I had to talk when I was three and a half. I had to talk when I was being driven down a row of trees. I'll never forget it in Troy, Missouri. And my great grandmother looked down at me and she said, you know, every season there's a different kind of fruit hanging on these trees. Hunting season means something different where we come from. And I promise you that you have probably 10, 12 relatives that were hung from these trees. I was three and a half when I had the talk. When white people gonna have a talk? When you you going to have a talk with your baby? Sit your kids down. I don't care if your kid is 50 and you're 75. It's time to have the talk. I don't care if you're 17 and your parents are 50. It's time to have the talk. When white people start having the talk, and they do so because Jesus is leading them, they have the talk because the Holy Spirit is the one that's empowering them. Then we will change. And then our complacency will crumble before our very eyes. But right now we are dis. We are unable, we are distanced from pain because facing the pain will mean that we have to confess our participation in it. And that may terrify us, but I wonder, I just wonder if our rage handed over to the power and the work of our living savior can lead us to righteous action. I gotta sit with that for a while. Thank you, Michelle. Um, I feel sadly vindicated around uh, 2014, 2015, I started distancing myself from predominantly white, particularly Christian institutions. And, you know, this was at the time when, when Black Lives Matter was on everyone's lips and we were seeing a slew, unfortunately, of human beings becoming hashtags and I was also in these circles. I had been in these circles for my entire Christian life and pushing for change and, and taking this rhetoric about racial reconciliation seriously, getting constantly pushed back, gaslighted, uh, uh, undermined in those efforts. And I said, okay, if this is the way you want your Christianity, then you can have it. I'm sick of trying to claw my way onto the table, at the table, to, to get you to listen to it. And, and that's not how I wanted it. That's not how I preferred it. And I certainly tried to engage, but was constantly stonewalled. And there were those people of color and black people, especially who um, looked at that distancing and said, oh, you're giving up on the church. You're giving up on Christians. Um, you're, you're being separatist, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's just a truism that in times of heightened racial tension, when white supremacy reveals itself more overtly, those are the times when we need 
as black people to find strength among each other and solidarity among each other. And so I say all that because um, I just want us to be very clear-eyed as black people uh, interacting with um, predominantly white institutions. And I highlight institutions because institutions have a culture and policies and practices that function far beyond individuals. And so you may know great individuals within an institution who are white, but we are, we're not changing the institution itself. And, and I don't think it's giving up, I've said this many times, it's not giving up on the faith, it's not giving up on um, the, the hope that people can change to say, this is a toxic environment. And I need to separate from myself that, I need to separate myself from this environment because the idol of whiteness has a stronghold here. And I need to go where that stronghold is not in place. So I think I've had half a dozen conversations just in the past seven to 10 days with black people far and wide across the country who are now undergoing this process of distancing and they're reaching out it's because they want to hear from people who have done this and, and get encouragement and wisdom and advice. And if that's you, just want you to know, I understand um, most of us on this call who are talking have been there and uh, you're not the one who is out of pocket. It's, it's this institution that you're affiliated with that is holding on to white supremacy so tightly that it refuses to change, that is holding on, like uh, Michelle said, to capitalism so tightly and this bottom line so tightly that they refuse to act in ethical ways. They're the ones who need to change. Yeah, uh, you know, before Ali hops in, you know, Michelle, you, you just said something about all of our complacency. Um, and there's something that you, you just identified that I, think, um, that I think I personally have been struggling with. And that's this, this subtle concept. It, it was in the back of my mind, but I've been pressing it down um, that I should do more. And, and I think there's, there's a part of me that has used the excuse um, that because I lived this experience, um, that my responsibility is a little bit lower and different. Um, and I know that it's expressed in different ways, but I, I feel that as a black man, but as also as a leader of a church, um, also as part of this organization, that I think I've, I've been lulled into the complacency. Um, and it's so easy and, it, and it's so, so tantalizing and it's so um, appealing to drink from that reservoir, like drink from that. It, it feels like a, a you know, obviously the, the broken cistern mentality, like it, it comes to mind. Like I, and I, I sensed, you know, I was, I was deeply, you know, we're trying to be honest on this call, but I've been, I was deeply convicted uh, by what you just said. And I'm deeply convicted uh, by my complacency, raising two black children um, and not, and not making the sacrifices necessary to make the world what it should be for them. Um, and sometimes I think, I think it's so easy for us to lean and rest upon that which we've already done rather than a, a lifelong commitment, a lifestyle commitment. And I just wanna um, express that and, and uh, hold space for everyone who feels as I do, um, you know, who is black and, and was deeply uh, moved and convicted by what you just said. Um, and, and um, you know, I, I, I couldn't unmute my mic so I couldn't hop in quickly and say that, but, but thank you for that, thank you. Yeah, let me add quickly. Um, one of my friends texted me today. She said, where can we go? Where can we go? 
Black people, where can we go? Black babies, where can we go? Is Where is the bosom of Abraham? Where is the bosom of God? Uh, we began to unpack and understand why so many of our ancestors chose to uh, meet the afterlife in the ocean. Our would-be ancestors, right? Not our true ancestors. And I said, there is no place. And this is the problem with complacency. There is no place we can go. Because our motherland is plagued because Canada has a prime minister that dressed up like us because we're despised mm. everywhere, right? We're despised in China right now. Uh, we're despised everywhere. There is no place, but that's why we have Psalm 23. That's why we know that in the valley of the shadow of literal death, yes. the presence of God is what is with us. And so I believe that part of that feeling convicted and, and coming out of complacency also very much has to be we're complacent because we're scared. Not mm. complacent because you're a jerk. You're complacent because you're terrified. And maybe, yeah, you're complacent because you're full of sin, but you're also terrified. And the only way to get through that fear is to acknowledge that there is no place you can go, baby. You mm. have to hide in the arms of God that are with you right now. Just mm. to interject. Amen. Allie. So, you know, to the, to the point of, of some of what's been mentioned here, something that I said several years ago a lot, and I haven't said it very much recently, but I should probably say it, is that this is really like the first civil rights movement that we've had in our nation that hasn't been led by the church, that hasn't been led by the Black church. Whenever I say the Black church, I mean that in a very broad sense. I don't necessarily mean historic Black denominations. I mean churches that are Black-led, full of Black people, predominantly Black spaces. And that's something that I realize, like, as we ask these questions, you know, Michelle definitely agree with your point that we, that we, only place that we can go really at this point is to Jesus. You know, the, the disciples said, you know, like, like, where else can we go? But to Jesus, he has the words of eternal life. And I believe that, um, I, I definitely agree with that sentiment, but I would, I would add to that, that it is important that we also have one another, that we, that, that we bond together as a, as a people with one another. And I think that as Christians, we, we have to really start to ask ourselves what we are doing as believers. And I understand there's, you know, the, the, the Christianity thing, I think that the Christianity thing, especially for um, black millennials and black Gen Xers, there is a little bit of, it's, it's a difficult space to navigate because mm -hmm. the, because even the black church has been complicit in some things that have harmed members of our own community. And so that, and so that has driven other, that has driven some of us out. But I, but as I, as I sit and as I reflect on this, I just, I, I keep thinking about, we about the importance number one of black space of of space where it is where where it is just us where there's not a white gaze where there's not people you know peeking peeking in the windows but but space where it's just us and then whenever we talk about our faith and we talk about our faith a uh, faith-based things i really think that that we that that we need to do more as black christians and not whenever i say you need to do more i think that a lot of times people here we need to do more and 
your mind almost goes automatically to like legalism and like a list of things. So like, here's, here's like the, the, the righteousness checklist. Whenever I say, whenever I say do more, I don't mean add things to the list and check them off and say, yes, I'm, I'm doing these things. What, what I mean by do more is it's, is it's more of just a state of, of being, of being uh, is a state of presence with, with, with ourselves, with one another, within our church spaces um, within, within faith spaces, if we don't have the ability, if, if maybe that, you know, there's not a black church or whatever, but creating spaces where we are able to be in the presence of, of God and seek, because that is what our ancestors did. Um, I, I took a class in, uh, in seminary a couple of quarters ago that was on the music of the civil rights and so within that discussion music of the civil rights movement, we learned just a lot about how the ancestors organized and they organized, they, they got together, they had prayer meetings. It was, it was something they, they set their lives aside in a way that I'm not sure many of us are ready to do. Now, whenever I say that at the same time, I want to qualify that, that I think that there was aspects of that, that was unhealthy. Uh, you know, the, 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 um, the, the, the story goes, I think it's, it's mo- somewhat apocryphal goes that, that, you know, whenever King was, de- whenever King died and at his autopsy, he had the heart of a 60 year old. Um, I think that there's, that there's aspects of that, that we can do that in a way that is overly demanding and unhealthy. But I really, I, I, I as, as this goes on, as we've been in this struggle and as I've been in the struggle for many years, I really see the value of us coming, of, of, of us coming together in solidarity of lifting our voices and singing, lifting our voices in prayers. Our ancestors before the meeting, the meeting would be at five o'clock and the ancestors would be there at, at three 30 at four o'clock praying before the, before the meeting even started, before the preaching even started. And, you know, I feel like that we need to get to that. We need to get to that place because they, I mean, these folks, and I, it's like, I, I, I am tired of centering them in this narrative, but at the same time, they're the ones that did it. These folks hopped out their truck and killed somebody in broad daylight. And that just, that is a level of evil. That is, that is nothing but evil. I, I, it feels like even something that's beyond evil because, you know, we, we talk about evil being done in, in the darkness. Well, this was done in broad daylight. So it wasn't even like that they thought that they was doing anything wrong. They was out, I mean, usually if, you, if you're going to do something shady like that, you're going to do it under the cover of darkness. They were out there in front of God and everybody. And what kills me is that this is the Bible, it, is that it, it's in Georgia, so it's probably the Bible Belt, and so those some of those men, those men might have been members of their local church. They might, they they could have been. And I'm not saying that they are, but they could have been deacons. They could have been elders. They could have they could have been youth pastor. They could have been men's group leader. They could have been the the, the dude that cooked all the burgers at the barbecue. And, and, and this level of evil that there is, the only way that we can fight that evil is through the power of prayer, through the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe that. I believe that fully. And I think that, that this is something as much as I'm probably going to harp on white people to, to do the right thing and to not be performative. 
we, I just, this is, this is something that's, it's just, it's so, it's so jarring that somebody was killed in broad daylight. Like that's how brazen this demonic spirit, that this demonic thing that I'm just going to call it what it is. And I'm, I'm Pentecostal. It's, it, I'm going to be spooky for a minute. To me, it's straight up demonic. Oh, on, it's something, it's, it's a straight up demonic <laughs> force that it's been, it's been around for a long time. It's been around, but but I'm talking about in these last like in these last six to eight years, it has manifested in such a way. I'm gonna be 35 years old this summer. I I remember the Rodney King beating. I remember watching that. I have like like I was I was a kid, but I remember I remember the riots where I lived in New Mexico and my and my um my our, our local TV station was was an, a Los Angeles affiliate. So we saw the raw and unfiltered stuff that was happening live and in color. I remember that, and this is and this time is unlike anything that I've seen. And so I say all that to say that like we that as we fight this thing, this is something that is it's straight up demonic it's straight up from the pit and the weapons of our warfare are not carnal so we get like like we can use the the knowledge the intellect all the resources and tools and stuff that we have but there is some point and that i want for black people that we have got to come together we have got to get together in the type of prayer the type of prevailing prayer that our ancestors did out in the hush harbors that that our ancestors did in the churches during the civil rights movement there has got to be a shift in us there has got to be a shift in in who we are and and in in what we're doing as a people as much as there's got to be a shift in them but like and i don't mean that in a way like we got to you sacrifice ourselves we've got to like you pray because it's but but anyway i just i feel like that there is more that we can do in terms of of getting together and binding together and calling it for what it is and doing and doing what it is and doing war and warfare with spirit because some of the stuff that we're doing right now ain't working yeah 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 white supremacy is a principality absolutely um it is spiritual wickedness in high places um you I know think, oh, um, go, go ahead, ahead go ahead jamar now go ahead so it's 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 also been true that where oppression increases resistance to oppression also rises up and uh, echoing my sisters, Michelle and Allie, as, as people of faith, we have to view this through the lens of faith. And thankfully, what I'm seeing, though, is a number of Christians across the racial and ethnic spectrum saying, okay, retweeting's not enough. Um, the fundraiser is great, but it's not enough. We need to actually become active. And, and so what I'm praying for uh, as Ali was saying, what I'm, what I'm asking the Holy Spirit for is that we would be filled with a spirit of um, agitation and activism and that we would follow along in the footsteps of folks like Michelle Higgins and those who she works with who are on the front lines at the grassroots level actually doing it. And what I'm praying for is that, that you know, in God's economy, no time is wasted. So this pandemic is wreaking havoc across the world. But for me personally, it's at least given me the opportunity to, to reevaluate my priorities and particularly the way I spend my time. And so I'm often conflicted, you know, is, is what I'm doing activism, is, is doing this Zoom call activism, is writing articles activism. I think in some sense, yes, 
but also there's got to be a level of sort of putting it all on the line, putting our bodies on the line and our well-being and our finances and all those things on the line. And what I'm trained for is a movement of Christians. And, and, and get this, it may never be a large number, all right? Like even in the civil rights movement, which we look back on as these halcyon days of church involvement in the civil rights struggle, it was a minority of churches that were sort of active and on yeah. the front lines. Yes. So we have to disabuse ourselves of this idea that, that all of a sudden everybody's going to get the picture and join along with us. No, we'll always be the prophetic minority, but that's okay because it only took Jesus and 12 disciples to, to, to make a, a monumental impact throughout the ages, right? And so um, I think a small group can make a significant change, especially, and I honestly, as a person of faith, think this is what's needed for Christians to, to actually live up to their, their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and his example and his teachings and, and Jesus's model for what justice looks like. When, when we start to feel that and we actually reprioritize um, our, our time and our spending and our lives, then we're going to see a, a, another movement. It's not going to fix everything. It's not going to take it all away. Only when Jesus returns will that happen. But it's odd because I feel at least the past six years, you could add eight years with Trayvon Martin. You could add 20 years with uh, uh, Rodney King and going back and back further. All of these events, though, for some, for a small group of people are adding up and building up to say, it's time to make a change. And so I'm praying for that group of people to rise up and maybe this is the time and maybe an incident like this is, an, is the event that catalyzes this generation to actually put boots on the ground and, and, and make a difference. And we're looking to leaders uh, like the folks on this call to help guide us. I know I am, but uh, I think there are gonna be some people who are ready for action. Let me let me say this as as we kind of, you know, over the next 10 minutes wind down and, and close out, you know, it it occurred to me as you were speaking, Jamar, and as you were talking, Ali, that isn't this um, the perfect time to arrest them based upon maintaining and preserving what is the status quo. Uh, there has been a moment of outrage. Um, we have all joined in and responded. Everyone has expressed anguish from liberal to conservative, from libertarian to progressive. Um, we are going to do a moment of solidarity tomorrow by running on his birthday. And on the night before, they arrest uh, the perpetrators after saying that they would have to send it to a grand jury. Perhaps it was that our voices were so loud and <laughs> we, started to, um, uh, we started to terrify the people um, who... Uh, who were in power, but yet I think it's also very telling that this is uh, the perfect way to douse cold water on the 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 fire that has been lit, you know, the spark that has come up, and, and so I really want to talk about how we continue this, how we what we should actually be doing, because I think. Um, it is going to be very easy, especially after this weekend, for the new cycle to move on. It is going to be extremely easy for everyone to act as though this did not happen and this to become just one of the footnotes in a crazy 2020 uh, year. And so at the end of the calendar year, what will we have to show for all the, the posts and all the things that we said, even on this call? Um, so I just want to want to throw this out there for anyone who is um, who is on the panel. Um, and then obviously I want to hear Michelle thought, Michelle's thoughts as well on what does what does movement look like? And then I also want us to to reflect on this idea of space. Like, what does what does space look like for us um, in in a pandemic isolated 
um, what does occupying space look like for for those who have the spirit of agitation and activism? Um, so, you know, Michelle Alley, as whoever whoever wants so to hop in. Can I'm going to defer to Michelle on some of the, the practical things, but I just need to to talk about the spirit here for a minute, <laughs> if I if I can. So, yes, I think that we can that that you know, okay, the dudes were arrested. Awesome. After two and a half months, I can't put, I cannot pat anybody on the back for doing the bare minimum. Do it like, this is the bare minimum of righteousness. It's not like, I I don't know. It's not like the dudes were on the run and they found them and captured them. Homies was at the house chilling in the pandemic and the police roll up and pick them up or wherever they were at. I don't, I don't know that. For, I don't know those details for sure. But my, but my point is, is that it costs them literally nothing to go and arrest these men. So I'm really not impressed by that at all whatsoever. Um, I'm just going to be real. I know we got, a, we got a bunch of white allies and stuff on the call. I'm going to be real. Like if y'all want to walk tomorrow, Feel free, do that, do you. I'm not criticizing that. But honestly, it doesn't do scubalon. And scubalon, for those of you who don't know, is the Greek word for poop, except for the less nice version of poop. It doesn't do anything. You going outside and walking in all of your white privilege is not resistance. It's not anything. Now, you can still do it to show solidarity. I think that there is value in solidarity. But something that I want to challenge you to do, especially since this is a Christian space, remember that little that verse. I am horrible at quoting chapter and verse. I know I'm a preacher. I'm like, whatever. I should be good at this, but I'm not. But I, but I remember what Jesus said. And Jesus said a little thing about doing your righteousness to be seen before men. So I invite you, if you're going to go out and do the walk tomorrow, if you're going to walk your 2.23 miles, how about you do it and you don't tell nobody about it? You do it and you pray and you pray for this spirit, for this demonic thing to be broken off and you don't post it on Instagram. You don't post a picture of yourself. You don't do a little picture of your feet or whatever nonsense that y'all just be coming up with just to center yourself in this. How about you just do it and you don't tell anybody about it because you know what will happen? What did Jesus say? You will get your reward in heaven. Now, if you post about all up on whatever, then guess what? That's your reward. And so I encourage you go out right now. We got like 12 hours before this thing be popping off tomorrow. Tell your little friends about that too, because it's not, it's not doing anything. It's not, it's not solidarity. It's, it's solidarity rather, but it's not activism. You're not doing anything. Now those now black folks, us going out in all of our blackness during a pandemic when I guess Missouri, I guess we don't still have a stay at home order right now in, in Missouri, but, but some of us still have stay. Well, I mean, black people probably still have stay at home orders. Let's just be real. Um, let's just be real about, let's just be real about that. But, but like, I think that a lot of us still are under stay at home orders. And so us going out in our blackness and walking around where we might not have the permission to do that, that is an act of resistance. That is an act of, of like whatever we want it, whatever crafty language we want to put on it. So I just want, so I just want to make that aspect of it clear. And then, and then what I'll say, I guess a little bit more, a little bit more to the point. Um, well, that's all I'll say. I'll let Michelle talk because she's, she's the expert. 
Nah, you said the feet though. You said don't take pictures of the feet. <laughs> I said don't take pictures because you, but you know how people be. They'll take a picture of their feet. They'll take a picture of the stroller that they're pushing their baby in. They'll take a picture of like their Apple Watch with the with the with the mileage or something on it. Don't do that mess. Do your righteousness before God. Not Instagram. Souls, not the soles of your shoes. Go ahead, Michelle. <laughs> beautiful beautiful are the feet um of those who spread good news just as a segue i'm tripping Pet- the pandemic is making all of us more petty than we started out and i'm here for it i 100 percent agree with ali especially about how we lament with our feet how we pray with our feet and what our prayer clauses mean to us the truth that uh, for me, at least, the truth of this challenge that we face now is to not get weary in well-doing. And I think weariness comes by so many, (laughs) it comes in so many forms. For me, it comes in knowing that no matter what the punishment is for these murderers, it won't bring justice. uh, Because no condemnation for the guilty, that is, if they go free, there's no justice. uh, and, and, And if they are put in jail, uh, where they you know, will most likely be protected or be connected directly to uh, deeper Nazi and supremacist organizations. There'll be no justice. There'll be no rehabilitation. They'll become only animals. So I don't care if they're put in prison. We won't be safe. Mm. And my family members who are in prison won't be safe. Mm. I don't care. I care about a generation of white children who are being raised to be racists right now. I care about the white children who are being raised to be racists at Sunday school, mm. at PCA churches, mm, churches, at PCUSA churches, at UCC churches. I care about kids who are being raised to despise people because of something that the Lord blessed them with. The Lord blessed our native brothers and sisters. He blessed our native kindred who are losing their lives at a rate 13 states combined cannot match the number of native people that have Mm -hmm. lost their lives. But we're weary in our well-doing saints because I don't have a native BFF. And so native issues, I don't care about them. I care about children in cages. You know, there's still babies in cages right now but I'm weary in my well-doing saints because there's so much black death that I don't have time to remember to not wear a sombrero on Cinco de Mayo. We're weary. And what makes us weary is that our communities are not, they're literally, they're actually not diverse in a way that would teach us and that would enrich us and that would bless us with showing us the whole heart of God. So our challenge tonight is actually much more soothing than we would think. And that is to remember the rich, and as Jamar said in the past, deliberate diversity of God's creation. Remember, look up, self-educate. Education and transformation are linked. And you don't have to make it hurt. My next point is going to hurt a little. But let's start with the soft one. Can you read a little? Can you look up what's going on in Puerto Rico? Because your heart is growing weary and well-doing because you can't absorb it all. Take a minute and think and ask yourself in your time of confession, Lord, who am I not thinking of today? 
the more you have proximity with the one who seems other, and it seems like such simple advice, but we do it all the time. The more we grow in proximity to the one who is other, the more we will be open to more others that we've never learned about. You will never be able to absorb the pain and the exact empathy and autopathy that we should be expressing to, our fel to the fellowship of, in Wuhan in China. But what if you are never so arrogant that you cannot extend compassion, empathy, and an autopathic fellowship to our Asian brothers and sisters? You will never know the difference every single time between Korea and Taiwan and the Philippines and, oh, and India and who, what caste and what clan and what liberation rising up movement. If you are deeply connected to the Black liberation struggle, your mind can't handle all of that information. But what if? You remember trans Black people. What if you think about queer disabled people as you sit there, cis, het, and fully abled? What if you mm. think about your other? What if you purposely embrace remembering children if you are a person who never wants to have them? What if you on purpose think about the one who is furthest from promise for you? What if you think about the elderly more? If you're terrified of getting old, maybe you've got to find out the enemy that is in your life and learn more about them. Mm -hmm. Who is that for real? Who is it? Mm -hmm. Because for many of us, it is that very other. It's that same other that when God draws us to knowledge of them, we will automatically activate to compassion for so many. And it's painless, my friends, it is painless. If you're in the Lord, you are only learning how to love people God already loves. Hmm. So that's the painless advice. The painful advice is that you must stop worshiping mammon. You must stop today. You are beholden to your income and you are so beholden to your income that you have, a, you have an implicit resistance to assisting the poor in a way that would make you approach poverty for 30 days. You sitting on $50,000 of savings, but you can't give more than 25 when you know that someone is starving. The diaper bank in your city is running out of tampons for people that they're trying to help in jail, and you're going to give them five bucks. Give those people $2,000. You know you can. You don't need your stimulus check. I don't give a damn. I don't give a damn that you'll be hurting for two and a half weeks. Yeah. You know you don't need that stimulus check. Give it all. Mm. That is activism. When you risk, when you wonder, will I have to only eat oyster crackers in my chili and I can't afford the Fritos, don't trip. All y'all little would-be foodies think about this all the time. If you can only afford a portion of your ordering out, of your going out for two weeks, friends, you ain't an activist. You're just excited. And that's the first step. So I don't want us to crush people for being excited, but I also don't want us to think or to presume that our activism is the same as pursuing something that costs us because you really are not free. You will not be free until everyone 
Come on. And God's kingdom is free. So you might as well start understanding and start living and start risking like a person who's in chains. You might as well start living like you have nothing to lose while your beloved, while God's beloved are losing everything. Slaying in the spirit. Uh, Let those who have ears hear. Hallelujah. Preach so you just put your, your finger on, on all of our idols. Um, namely capitalism right and that's that's black people too uh and, and what's beneath the the addiction to capitalism is the addiction to comfort and safety which you can never be prophetic and be safe you can never act justly in an unjust world and be comfortable and so you're disabusing us of these ideas that we can have it both ways we can't have it both ways so as we wrap this up um I think one of the things is to figure out where you are in this journey and figure out how to take the next step. So it's a, there, there are some listening now for whom all of these ideas are new and you've heard some things that just rocked you because you haven't heard it from people before, uh, let alone Christians before or people you look to as spokespersons or, or leaders somehow. And, and you've got to sit with that and wrestle with that. And, and, and your step might, to be, might be to learn more about it. It might be to follow these folks on social media. It might be to pick up some books or watch a documentary. For others of you, it's like Michelle said, figure out who we have categorized in our own hearts as the enemy and reaching out to them beyond just knowledge, obviously learning about them, um, learning about their history and their context, but also developing actual relationships because it's real real hard to continue hating people who are in you're in close proximity with now it's still possible but it's much harder and then and then i think there there have to be those of us who really sit with what does what does sacrifice look like right now is it giving that stimulus check to a black led ministry uh, or organization or community uh, organization? Is it, is it actually organizing uh, some sort of demonstration to make public that which is attempts to be hidden? Uh, some of you, I think all of us really, it's, it's, it's pushing our, our faith communities, our local congregations to recognize these kinds of injustices from the pulpit, in the prayers, in the materials that we read, et cetera. We could go on and on about specific actions to take. But I, I think for me, what I'm hearing is figure out where I am right now in this journey. And, and it may not be where you are, but what is that next step forward? And again, like, like has been said, do not grow weary in well-doing. Uh, there is a lot of evil in the world. There's a lot of darkness that's being trumpeted from the White House on down to Georgia and, and everywhere in between. Uh, it can be discouraging and disheartening. Part of assessing where you are in this journey is to say that you're tired and you're weary and, and the only thing you can do is just get up another day and that's okay. But also reminding ourselves and each other, and we can't do this alone, but in community of the hope that we have because of Jesus, if he could conquer death and sin and Satan, we have hope. We have hope against this idol of white supremacy. Amen. Amen. Well, um, I think enough has been said to where no one can can leave 
claiming that they don't know the next step. Um, I pray that everyone who is on this call will experience the, the duality of a word from God, which is that we are deeply disturbed yet deeply refreshed. Um, we, are, we are bothered yet motivated. Um, we are challenged yet changed. Um, I pray that is what we feel and I pray that is what we experience. Let me encourage you um, to remember uh, that uh, the struggle is not over and, and we have not even begun um, to end what we face. Um, enough is enough. Enough is enough. If not now, when? And we have these uh, calls and we have these panels and nothing changes. We are spurred. We are excited, as Michelle would say. Uh, but we are not active and we are not agitators. And so I encourage you as you, you leave this call to remember that enough is enough. If not now, then when? I want to give a special thanks to all of our panelists, Ali Henney, Michelle Higgins, Jamar Tisby. I'm Tyler Burns. Thank you all so much for joining us. Um, I think we have said all that needs to be said tonight, but there will be more that needs to be said. Pray that you will go and do what you've heard. Those who have ears, let them hear. Not just be hearers, but be doers as well. Good night. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.